This message was presented at the DYC 2013 conference, Before Man and Angels, in Orlando, Florida. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.dycweb.org. Okay, you know, I'm two minutes late starting. I apologize. We'll try to do it. Um, we'll try to stay on time. We have an hour, correct? We, we end at 11, and then the big plenary starts at quarter after 11, right? So I will make sure that we get out by then. Welcome to part two. Part two of this seminar on reaching the wealthy, worldly, and well-educated. In this uh, piece of it, we're going to talk about the method the method of uh, sharing. So we're going to talk about a framework of the approach as to how to share. Um, before we go on, how many people were in the last session? I just want to, okay. Looks like most of us. Anyone not in the last session? Wow. Okay, I did not expect that. So, <laughs> um, all right, so let's do a quick review, right? Quick review. Uh, in fact, we'll do the review off of this. Does anyone remember how many people there are who you could call wealthy, worldly, and well-educated in the United States? About 20%, approximately 60 million, which is about the size of the UK, the entire population of the UK, right? So this is a huge mission field. It's very difficult, right? What are some of the reasons why it's so difficult to reach these people? Sorry? Our lack of faith, yes, that's right. Our lack of faith in reaching out to them. What other reasons? They're very different from us. Fear of repulse. Yeah, we're afraid of being turned down and rejected. It's just like middle school all over again. <laughs> that was a joke. All right. But what, what else makes it difficult about uh, wealthy people to be reached with the gospel? Striped shirt in the back. They're satisfied, right? We read about how the, the law and the righteousness of God is sweeter than the honey and the honeycomb. And then we read in Proverbs how the satisfied soul loathes the honeycomb. So they're satisfied. What else? Why else is it hard to reach the... Yes. Yes, they're self-sufficient. They can create heaven on earth. Their version of heaven on earth using their money. So they don't feel like they need heaven. Yes, because of their peer group, their social status. They are so locked in to the social circle, the glitterati, the whatever you want to talk about, uh, who, who is equally as secular as they are. And so it's a big deal for them to step out of that into the faith. Yes. They don't want you to get close because they think you want something. Because everyone who comes up to them wants something. They want money. They want a job, they want influence, whatever it is. They get suspicious of people. Good, that's great, yes. Procrastination, yes, procrastination is another thing. They just think, well, I'm not thinking about that right now. I'm too busy working, I'm too busy making money, I'm too busy traveling and having fun. So those are all reasons why this is difficult. Great, great review. Now. We talked a little bit about our qualities and why it's hard for us, right? Because we're afraid of being rejected and because we lack faith in God, right? But why does God want us to witness to these people and, in fact, make it the first priority? You remember that uh, Spirit of Prophecy said that, that these people should be the first priority for witnessing. Why is that? Um, yes. 
They need it. Yes. That's right, because first of all, it's for their own salvation, but second of all, is because once converted, they can become workers for the gospel, both in terms of their money and their talents and their time and their influence. And so there are a lot of reasons why Spirit of Prophecy prioritizes reaching out to the wealthy, worldly, and well-educated. And then the third point here is what do we need to do in order to be effective witnesses to this group? We have to be authentic. What else? Personal effort. That's right. Traditional forms of evangelism tend not to work. She said, you'll remember, publications tend not to work. The typical methods and approaches tend not to work. It's personal effort we need. Yes, ma'am. We need to, thank you, we need to bring our A-game. Uh, Ellen White writes this over and over again. You need to bring your A-game in order to reach these people. You can't just do your lackadaisical B-game or C-game, which is often, we talked about in the last session, oftentimes what happens in our churches, forget witnessing, but even in executing the church service, we bring our C-game. I will often, I'm, a, I'm an elder at my local church, and I will preach from time to time, and I will uh, sometimes ask people how many times they were late to work this week and to contrast that to how many times they are late to church. Right? So we need to bring our A game. Thank you. So that's, that's, the, that's the review. And let's move on into this next part. So the method. I want to start with this concept of a flywheel. Uh, Jim Collins. Anyone heard of Jim Collins? Right, so he is a business writer. He's a business guru. He's written, written a bunch of books, uh, Good to Great, Built to Last, uh, a, a number of, of these books. And one of the basic concepts he talks about is a flywheel. Anyone know what a flywheel is? Any engineers in this uh, room? You want, anyone want to explain what a flywheel is? No? No takers? All right. Well, then in that case, you have to hear an MBA's explanation of what a flywheel is, which may or may not be physically accurate. But a flywheel is basically a disc of some sort that is weighted and uh, created in such a way, manufactured, machined in such a way, that it stores energy so that once whatever impulse you give to that wheel is, it keeps turning. And oftentimes with flywheels, they use the power of inertia to keep that motion going. I'm way out of my depth now, but basically to keep that motion going. And so you have to push it a bunch of times. And every little bit, though, makes it go a little bit faster. And then over a time, it just starts spinning on its own. And he talks about companies that are built to last or, or great companies. The reason why they're great is because not because they have some blockbuster idea or this or that, but because they have a flywheel. And what that means is a series of uh, strategic decisions and actions that build upon each other and create momentum. Okay? Well, there's also a Christian's flywheel. In our Christian walk, we have a flywheel, and it starts with having heart conversion. And we're going to talk about each of these elements. You start with heart conversion, which leads to you living a Christ-like life. We talked about an, you have to be a living epistle in order to be an effective witness to this class. You start with heart conversion. That makes you more like Christ. As you live like Christ, you attract spiritual interests. And some of those spiritual interests you will end up studying together. 
And of those you study with, some of those will become converts. And as you take part and observe and play a role in their conversion story, it builds upon your own heart conversion. And so it builds on each other. Each step builds on each other, and it creates a flywheel effect in your spiritual life. So witnessing is not merely about the other person. In fact, you could argue it is almost secondarily about the other person and primarily about yourself. And we'll talk more about that. So I want to ask a question. What are these guys doing in this picture? They are playing basketball, right? This is not a trick question. They're playing basketball. What is this guy doing in this picture? He's playing basketball, but he's more than that. He's a basketball player, right? LeBron James, by the way, he says we're all witnesses. That's not me talking. That's LeBron. <laughs> but these guys are playing basketball, but LeBron's a basketball player. What's the difference? One, one is a verb. You're playing basketball. It's something you do and then you stop for fun. But if you're a basketball player, that's who he is. And that's the point I'd like to make here. Are you just witnessing or are you a witness? Because to be successful with the worldly, wealthy, and educated, well-educated, you cannot just be witnessing to them. You have to be a witness. You have to be like LeBron is versus these guys playing pickup basketball. Does that make sense? Amen? Amen. All right. So it starts with heart conversion. Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again of the Spirit. Right? It was not optional. He says, it's an option for you to be born again of the Spirit. No, no, no. Right? He said, you must be born again. And then he also tells the disciples, the Spirit will make you a witness. He didn't say the Spirit might make you a witness. He said the Spirit will make you a witness. And so, if you must be born again of the Spirit, and then the Spirit will make you a witness, that means if you connect those dots, if you are born again you will be a witness. Does that make sense? Right? If you are born again, then you will be a witness. That's a biblical principle. So if you are heart converted, you will be a witness. But the converse of that, the contrapositive, and this is a law of logic, so as far as we can tell, it holds in all cases. That means if you are not a witness, you are not heart converted. Let that sink in. If you are not a witness, you are not heart converted. And so what I would say right off the bat here is your witness is a barometer of your salvation. And so first step here is if you look at this and you think to yourself, and this is the seat I was in not too long ago, but if you look at this equation and you think to yourself, you know what, I don't think I'm heart converted. Well, then praise the Lord that you came to this seminar because now you know you're not and you can do something about it. I'm actually serious about that. Whether you want to witness, whether you are a witness, is the acid test of your heart conversion. Does that make sense? Amen? Amen. 
All right. All right. Heart conversion has lots of positive benefits. One is that you'll see all these icons. You've got Angie's List, reviews you can trust. You've got the like button. You've got the retweet. You've got the Amazon customer reviews. You've got Yelp. Our, uh, our culture is full of recommendations, right? Now, when's the last time you recommended something? Just someone tell me, when's the last time you recommended something to someone else? Anyone? Yes, yes, ma'am. A week ago, what did you recommend? Hydrotherapy. You recommended hydrotherapy to a friend of yours or a lady you met? Okay, good. Now, why did you recommend hydrotherapy to that lady? Not, not the personal details of her situation, but, but why did you recommend, why does anyone recommend anything? Because it works because you believe in it, right? Because you have confidence. If you're not converted, you don't have confidence about your faith, which is what leads you to not say anything. Does that make sense? But if you are converted, you will have the confidence of this young woman up on this screen. She's got a megaphone, and she is just screaming from the top of her lungs whatever it is she's saying. She's got confidence. All right? So heart conversion, one of the benefits is that it gives you confidence. Amen? All right. But the other thing that heart conversion does for you is it gives you a sense of urgency. Because if you're heart converted, you know that sharing your faith and all of what we know about the great controversy and how things are going to end and what's going to happen in the second coming, all these things, you know that this is not mere and, uh, merely an intellectual discussion. When your heart converted, it is as real to you as anything else in your life. Right? It is as real to you as the, the air you breathe and the water you drink. And because you know what's going to happen, and because you know what's going to happen to those who are not saved, you know that there is a train barreling down on them. And Satan has got these people on the train tracks tied up, tied down to the world. And you will have the urgency of this woman here trying to untie this person so that he can get off the tracks. If your heart converted, you will have a sense of urgency. And it is only with that sense of urgency that it will force us to get out of our comfort zone to be that witness. Amen. Amen. Does that make sense? Okay, great. So once you are con heart converted, Christ will transform your life if you will let him. And here are just a few um, principles that I've used in my life that have led to my heart conversion and led to my walk with the Lord. First of all is, you need to have a daily devotional life. I think three people agree with me. Amen. Amen. You need to have a daily devotional life. I'm going to share my testimony on Sabbath afternoon plenary, and you'll hear that before five years ago, I never had a devotional life because I was not heart converted. But it makes all the difference in the world. It makes a difference with prayer, reading scripture, and doing it when you don't even feel like it. Just showing up is 80%, not 50%, 80% of it is just showing up. 
day in, day out, even if you don't feel like it. Just go. I've had days when I am in my prayer posture and I'm so tired and I'm falling asleep during the prayer. But I'm glad I showed up because the Lord's still blessed. This kind of devotional walk will gain you victory over sin. We need to be living epistles to these people. And we need to gain victory over sin. And so one of the things that has really helped me is confessing specific sin. I used to pray prayers uh, of, of repentance or forgiveness. I used to pray using the master services agreement approach to repentance. There's some lawyers in the room I know. You will know what a master services agreement is. But basically with big companies, when you do business with uh, uh, another company and you have repeated interactions, you don't want to do a separate contract for every single time something happens. So you do a master services agreement, which encompasses all of the different transactions that you do with that company. And so a master services agreement approach to uh, repentance sounds like, dear Heavenly Father, Forgive me for my sins, period. You know what they are, and I know what they are, so let's just call it good. That is the master services agreement approach to confession. But you can only get victory over sin when you are uh, confessing specific sins. Because you face every morning those things over the last 24 hours that you did, which reveal anew how much you need the Lord. And he shows you that you are gaining victory over sin because there are sins that I used to have to confess on a daily basis, which over time decrease and decrease, and today it's rarely, if at all. Praise the Lord. Not because of me, but because of him. And there are certain sins which I had to confess all the time, and I still have to confess all the time. And it reveals to me which sins are most deeply seated in my heart. And so that is really important. Confess specific sins. Pray for the fruit of the Spirit. Memorize it. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And actually being a little bit mathematical, I decided to break out love and say, uh, love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth right? And so you pray that. Pray scripture to God because you know that it's true. Amen? And ask God to change you. The third piece here is pray for the salvation of others in your life. Intercessory prayer. And here's the list. Family, friends, church members, co-workers, bosses, direct reports, neighbors, classmates, professors, etc. When I was unconverted, my prayers, I couldn't even pray for two minutes, right? Because how long can you pray when it's... Um, uh, thank you for your blessings. Uh, forgive me for my sins. Uh, please protect me this day. And um, please be with my family and friends. That was like 30 seconds, maybe. Right? But when you start praying, just like individual sins, individual people, that gets you out of your own selfishness and puts you in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus prayed for us. Intercessory prayer is a Christ-given practice that we need to practice in our lives for our devotional walk. Oh, direct reports. Those are people in the corporate world. I have people who work directly for me. So that would be a direct report. 
Yes. I'll share one thing uh, about that. One of the things I pray, pray every morning is that I would be a blessing at work, that I would be a blessing to my company as an enterprise, that I would be a blessing to the people I report to or those who are senior to me, and I name them by name. I pray that I would be a blessing to my peers, and I pray that I would be a blessing to my direct reports or people who are subordinate or junior to me. Um, Someone asked me once uh, in a mentoring conversation, what is your leadership philosophy? And that is what I told her. I told her that I pray that I would be a blessing to everyone around me. And that is my le leadership philosophy. And so this kind of prayer is really important. It gets you out of your own head and gets you into the heart of the people around you. And the last piece here is service at your church, at your community. If you're not doing something for the Lord, then you're not progressing. And it's just as simple as that. And I'm sorry, I don't mean to offend anyone, but it's just true. And I know it's true because that's where I was five years ago. Amen. Thank you, brother. All right, so Christ will transform your life, and you need it in order to witness to these people. Now let's get to some of the uh, uh, practical stuff here. Well, that was all practical, actually. I, excuse me. Uh, but let's talk about the witnessing part. So once you are living a Christ-like life, you will attract spiritual witnesses, uh, interests. And I want to introduce a few metaphors here, a few metaphors. Anyone know what this picture is depicting here? Thank you. Fly fishing. Fly fishing. Does anyone know how to fly fish? Right? Okay, so what is distinctive about fly fishing versus other kinds of fishing? You stand in the river. Yeah, so you have to be in the middle of it. You can't do it from on the shore, you have to get into the river. So you have to be up to your hips in it. Yes, that's, that's distinctive. What else is distinctive? You need a special Great, you need, spe you need to be equipped for it, right? It's, not, it's a different beast than just typical fishing. Thank you, great, great point. What else is distinctive about fly fishing? Technique. The technique, and what about the technique, sir? It's the casting, right? And so I'll confess, I'm not a fly fisherman, but I know enough about it to, but you guys can correct me. But the, what's, what's distinctive about fly fishing is in typical fishing, you might just cast your line and then you sit and you wait, right? That's the typical fishing. But in fly fishing, you're always doing this. You're always casting and pulling back, casting and pulling back, casting and pulling back, casting and pulling back. And that's the perfect metaphor for what we're going to talk about in witnessing to the wealthy, worldly, and well-educated. What it is not is this. Right? We have a picture here of net fishing, deep-sea industrialized net fishing, where they pull the net out of the water, and it's got all these fish in it, and they're extracted by force. Right? This... You're casting your, your line, looking for the fish that are hungry. In this, I don't know whether these fish are hungry or not, but if they are, they won't be for much longer. <laughs> we are not doing this. This is not what we're doing. We're doing this. We are fly fishing. Does that make sense? Amen. 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 Now, another metaphor. Anyone ever been to an orchard or picked fruit before? Yeah? Okay, we got more takers on that. When you are walking through an orchard, how do you know whether a fruit is ready to be picked? 
Your color, you look at it, you observe it. You have to look at the fruit. You, you give a little tug, right? You just test it, right? And if it's ripe and it's ready, it'll come off, right? But if it's not, it's going to hang on. And if you yank it off, what's going to happen to that fruit? It's not going to ripen. It's, it's a waste. It's dead. That fruit is dead. And it will never ripen. It will never be sweet. It's just dead. And so you can see this picture of a little toddler just gently touching and tugging on this apple. That is the metaphor for what we are doing. We're just walking through the orchard and we're looking for the fruit that is ripe and we're just gently observing it, looking at the color, smelling it, touch, um, pulling on it gently. We are not doing this. This is a picture of a big tractor harvester going down a row, a row of trees in an orchard, just yanking all the fruit off indiscriminately and putting it into a bin. This is not what we're doing. Amen. Does that make sense? Right? So whether you're a fisher or a farmer, you can pick whichever analogy you like, but it's the same idea. We are looking for fish that are hungry or we are looking for fruit that is ripe. We are not looking to drag people into the boat or into the bin by force. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right. How do you do this? Three points here. First of all is you build personal credibility, and you do it purposefully. Second, you have spiritual experiences in your own life regularly. And then third, you engage in spiritual conversations naturally. All right, so build personal credibility purposefully, have spiritual experiences regularly, and engage spiritual conversations naturally. Let's talk about each one. First, building per, uh, personal credibility. Be excellent and do your best. We talked about the A game. It's not just about the A game in your religious life. It's also your A game in your you know, your workplace, your school, wherever you are. Wherever you are that's not church, being excellent. And, of course, we turn to Daniel. There are examples of this, but Daniel chapter 1, verses 17 through 21. And this is about, uh, we, we know Daniel here, right? We're at GYC, right? So I'll just, just start reading in verse 17. As for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now at the end of the days, when the king had said that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. Then the king interviewed them, and among them all, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they served before the king. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who are in all his realm. Be excellent and do your best. They weren't just a little bit better. They were ten times better. And they were ten times better. I'm sure they were hitting the books, and I'm sure they were studying, and I'm sure they were working hard. But it was from who? Their excellence was from who? God. And so when you are... If you would like to be a witness to the WWWs, you need to be excellent. And one of the things 
you need to pray for in your morning walk with the Lord is give me excellence. Help me to be sharp. Help me to bring my A game. Help me to be on top of things. Right? Bless me to make the most of the talents you've given me. Right? We need to do that. We need to do our best because that builds credibility. Getting along with others. There are a lot of verses here, and I think just in the interest of time, I'm not going to talk about all of them. But there's one example also in Daniel which I love. And it's Jan Daniel chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. So this is after Daniel had had the uh, interpretation given to him by the Lord. And we pick it up in verse 24. Therefore Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me before the king, and I will tell the king the interpretation. Then Arioch quickly brought Daniel before the king and said thus to him, I have found a man of the captives of Judah who will make known to the king the interpretation. What did Daniel just do? He did protect the others, but what did he do with Arioch? I'm sorry, speak up. He did persuade him. But he just gave Arioch the opportunity to look really good in front of his boss. Did you catch that? We have to remember, Daniel had already been before the king. In fact, when Arioch came and Daniel said, hey, why are you trying to kill everyone? It says that Daniel went straight to the king and said, give me time. You remember that? But this time, Daniel could have gone straight to the king, but he made a stop on the way. He went to Arioch. He said, hey, I've got the answer. And then Arioch gets to come before the king and say, I have found a man who can show you the interpretation. Daniel made Arioch look good in front of others. And so my point here is get along with other people. Get along with other people. It's, uh, I, wish, I wish we could read these other verses. Let's just go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I want to read that one together with you. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Chapter 9, verses 19 through 23. All right. In verse 19. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became, I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law as without the law, not being without the law toward God, but under the law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without the law. To the weak I became as the weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. Now, some have asked, how do you preserve your own morality in a secular world, right? And what Paul is saying here is not that I go party and carouse with the Aphrodite worshipers on Fridays, right? That's not what he's saying, right? Do we all agree? That's not what he's saying. But in so much as you can, and Spirit of Prophecy says this too, in so much as you are able, find common ground. We as a church, for good reasons, are so focused on being separate. 
right? We, we try to isolate ourselves from all different sectors of this world that are not explicitly Bible or spiritual or religious, right? And I understand that, and I've, I've changed a lot of the things about my lifestyle as well. But insofar as we can, without compromising our principles, right? So that's the third point here. Without compromising our principles, in so much as we can, we need to find common ground. And so um, here's an illustration I use in a secular context. People ask me all the time when I'm mentoring people at work, how do I find my own authentic style at work? Because the company has its own culture, but I have who I am, right? And I feel like I don't fit in, right? Has anyone ever had, and this doesn't have to be a company, it could be uh, at school, it could be at school, right? Has anyone ever had that feeling? Like the general culture around you doesn't fit with who you are, and so you just feel like a fish out of water. You feel like one of those fish in that net all the time, right? And, and I, it's a real problem. But what I tell these people is, I, say, I ask them a question, I say, uh, well, I give them an illustration. I say, the way I'm at work, when I'm in a meeting or something like that, the way I talk to my boss is different from the way I talk to my daughter. Right? And, and that's normal for anyone of us here. Right? The way you talk to one person in one setting is different from the way you talk to another person in another setting. Correct? But those are both me. The way I talk to my boss is me, and the way I talk to my daughter is me but they're just different facets of me, right? And so what I try to explain to people is that in the, in the classic Venn diagram framework, right, two overlapping areas, right, this is what, this is me, this circle over here is me, and this circle over here is the culture, right, the culture. And this is all the stuff that the culture values, and this is all the stuff that me values, that I value. And you just got to find that area of overlap in the middle. And unless you're an incredibly narrow person, or in, in, unless this culture is incredibly narrow itself, and we're going to talk about this, but I'll just say a word about it now, which is there are certain places that we as living epistles should not be right? Some, some sectors of business, thankfully not the ones that I've been part of, but there are some industries and sectors of business where, say, going to a strip club is a normal activity uh, when you're with the group, right? But what I would say to you is there is no way to be a living epistle at a strip club. Even if you're not drinking, even if you're not, you know, tucking whatever in where, right? Even if you're not participating and you're just sitting there, there is no way to be a living epistle at a strip club, right? That is out here in the Venn diagram. And so in order to be a living epistle, you don't, you don't participate in that. But instead, you try to find this part here, the, the areas of overlap. And so you need to give some focused thinking to that. What, for any individual, for any group, what is the one area? Maybe it's a hobby you have. We should have hobbies, amen? amen? This is something, frankly, that I've had to challenge myself with because ever since my conversion experience, the only things I like to read or listen to are sermons on audio verse. 
or, or Bible books, and you know, the Bible or Spirit of Prophecy. Like, those are the only things I really like to do. I used to be totally into, like, what, what are the headlines and et cetera, et cetera, right? I've had to force myself. So Twitter is a great tool for this. I'm not an investor. But Twitter is a great tool for this because you just subscribe to some of the main headline, you know, news source, whatever it is that you're in. It's ESPN, maybe it's a, a Wall Street Journal, whatever it is, right? And then you can very quickly just scan through headlines. And then if someone brings up a topic to you, you can say, oh, you know, I saw a headline on that. <laughs> right? That's true, isn't it? I did see a headline on that. And then that gives me an opening to ask a question. What was that all about? I didn't read the article. <laughs> right? So we need to stay engaged with our culture. Right? We can't just, I mean, we, we do need to uh, read this book a lot. But <laughs> Twitter is really helpful for just staying in touch with whatever else is going on. All right. So build personal credibility. Then you need to have spiritual experiences. Now, I think when, when you hear the phrase spiritual experiences, you might think about like you're praying and a light shines down on you, or, or maybe you have like a vision of something that happened. No, that's not what I'm talking about here. A spiritual experience is I went to church. Right? A spiritual experience is, oh, I taught Sabbath school. Or there was a great guest speaker, right? It could be something from your devotional life. You know, I read something about that today, right? Uh, sometimes from your Bible studies, someone might say something to you, and you can use that as a spiritual experience. You can spiritual conversations with others. Events and trips. Oh, what are you doing over the uh, Christmas New Year break? Oh, I'm going to this conference put on by my church. It's in Florida. Right? It's a spiritual experience. And then the type of media that you consume. Right? These can all be spiritual fodder for the next step, which is having spiritual conversations, but in a really natural way. So this is a list of actual questions that I've received from people that have led to spiritual conversations. All right? What's up or how was your weekend? Has anyone ever been asked this question? Yeah, okay, a couple of you, right? This is, this, is, this is the most normal question in the world. This question can lead to a spiritual interaction. Because when someone asks me how my weekend was, I say, well, we went to church, and then we went, and uh, the next day on Sunday, we ran some errands. Done. That's a spiritual conversation. Remember, we're fly fishing, right? So I just casted. When I said I went to church, I was just casting. I was trying to see if that fish was hungry. Right? Any vacation plans? Oh, I'm going to this conference down in Orlando. Oh, what's it about? Well, it's, a, it's actually put on by my church. And it's a great time of year to be introspective and think about the big picture. Everyone loves that answer. I've never had anyone say, oh, I'm so offended by that. <laughs> Not once. Most people say, you know what, that's right. It is a great time of year. 
And then I might say something like, yeah, and you know, New Year's, it's such an anticlimactic thing. And all these, you know, I, I remember when I would go out and do whatever and like this whole Times Square thing, and then people wake, wake up with a hangover and then what do they got? I always found New Year to be incredibly anticlimactic. And then people will say, yeah, you know, you're totally right. We just amp up New Year's, but it's just this big nothing burger. <laughs> right? That's a spiritual conversation. How did you meet your wife? I met my wife, we went to the same church when we lived in Chicago. Oh, okay, now I'm casting, right? I'm casting. Do you still play the cello? I used to be a professional cellist, uh, but it's been a long time, over 17 years since I left that business. But I still play the cello. And so I, what I say is, oh yeah, I, I do play the cello. I, you know, I try to play most mornings. And then he's, this, this is an actual conversation. He said, oh, well, when do you get up in the morning? Well, I, you know, I get up at around 4.30. Well, how long do you play the cello? <laughs> and I say, well, about 30 minutes, plus or minus. And then he's doing the math. I know you get into the office around 8.30, and you get up at 4.30, so what are you doing for the other three and a half hours? All right, half an hour for commuting. What are you doing for the other three hours? And I say, well, um, I work out in the morning. And, uh, and then I spend some time in prayer and Bible study. And this gentleman who I was talking to said, that's a really great thing to do. I had no idea whether he was religious before I said that. But that's what I, you know, that's what I tell him. What do you do for fun? Someone asked me this at a funeral. <laughs> when you're at a funeral, right, there's a lot of milling around time. And this was a funeral for my boss's father, my boss's father. So there were a lot of people from work there. And so uh, this gentleman was standing next to me after the receiving line. He said, so what does David Kim do for fun? And I said, well, you know, most of the time it's a lot of uh, activity around the family and around the church, right? I'm casting, right? And he said, oh, okay, that's great, that's great. Um, yeah, I love family stuff, that's what he says. He avoided the church stuff, right? So now I have more information. And so then I said to him, well, um, you know, so what do you do with your family? And he talked about what he did with his family. And then I said, so um, do, you, do you do anything as far as church? Because I had talked about church, so I want to know if he does anything with church. And he says, no, actually, I'm an atheist. And so I immediately freaked out and ended the conversation. <laughs> No, really what I did was I said, oh, an atheist, okay. Um, why are you an atheist? That's interesting. That's interesting. Interesting is one of those words that means nothing. <laughs> That's interesting. Why are you an atheist? And he said to me, well, you know, I just can't get past all this, like, the, the origins and creation and blah, blah, blah. All right, I just think, I just think of, you know, Christianity, it, you just have to be, you, it's not logical. And he says to me, and I said to him, oh, well, okay, well, um, but you got to admit, right, uh, no one was actually there at the beginning, right? And no one, no one can disagree with that, right? Let us stipulate that no one was actually there to observe it, correct? Yes, point one. Point two then, because no one was actually there to observe it, Therefore, any belief or worldview that someone has around that has to be based on different pieces of evidence, correct? Yes, okay, but there's no proof 
that this uh, evolutionistic uh, theory of origins is the right one, correct? That's true. There's not proof. Therefore, that is as much a faith-based system as is mine. And he had to agree with that. Any honest, logical, wealthy, worldly, or well-educated person has to agree with that line of thinking. Right? So now I've just turned him, I've just made him admit that his worldview is just as faith-based as mine. And then you can start talking about which faith is better or worse and more plausible. Right? Now, Next, on my other side, this was us talking, and then on my other side was a woman who I also work with. She's a, um, she's a PhD in physics from an Ivy League school. So she's reasonably smart. <laughs> she's also, she grew up in uh, mainland China where there are officially atheists, right? And so she overheard what we were talking about, and she said, what are you guys talking about? I said, oh, we're just talking about um, what we do on the weekends and uh, theory of origins. <laughs> and she's a physicist. And she says to me, yeah, you know, um, I'm an atheist, right, because of science and because of, you know, I didn't grow up with any kind of faith, right, because being in China. And then she said something completely unexpected to me. She said, but I often wish that there were a God. And I said, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> Why do you wish that there were a God? And she says, because one, she's a physicist. She observes all these laws of physics and how finely tuned they are. And it's just hard to explain. And two, she wouldn't feel so alone in the universe. Funerals and weddings are great places to have spiritual conversations. <laughs> but that all started with, what do you do for fun? That whole interaction with those two people started with, what do you do for fun? How are you guys settling into the area? We moved to uh, Pennsylvania about four years ago, and people would ask me, hey, how are you settling in? And I'll say, oh, you know, it's pretty good. It takes a little time. Uh, one of the things that has been helpful, though, is that we found a church. I'm casting, right? Many people say, oh, which church? Where, where is it? And so, et cetera, right? So that's a spiritual conversation. Why do you homeschool? How do your kids get socialization? And I'll explain, well, the reason why we homeschool, lots of reasons, but you know, one of the reasons is you just read about what happens in the schools these days, and it's pretty scary. And everyone say, oh, yeah, it's terrible. <laughs> I've never had one person disagree with that. But then they'll say, but how do your kids get socialization? Well, you know, they have their activities, like um, my daughter, she's got ballet, and the ballet girls love to hang out with each other. And, and we also have church, and we have our, our, the kids at church, and so they get socialization in a variety of different ways. Right? I'm casting. One a question I got, that was a doozy. Uh, how do you manage your ambition versus your desire for work-life balance? This isn't a mentoring conversation. And I said to her, well, I can tell you about a lot of different ways to manage your time, but frankly, the most important thing that I do is I pray. And then the conversation went from there. And I ended up in personal Bible studies with this individual. By the way, she asked me for the personal Bible studies. 
after a number of interactions. I've had the privilege of studying the Bible with um, you know, half a dozen people over the last few years. Um, each time they ask me, because you're casting. You're casting for people who are hungry, right? You're tugging for fruit that is ripe. And so when that fruit is ripe, you just test it, and it drops into your hand. Yeah. Amen. Do you have any advice for how to be successful at work? One guy I was talking to, he went to a fancy MBA school. He worked at one of the top uh, management consulting firms in the industry. Um, yeah, and he was, he was struggling. He was new. He was struggling at work. He asked, well, how have you been successful? Because you've been here uh, a relatively short time, too, and you have a similar background to me. And I gave him a couple, you know, oh, do this, do that, just secular, normal pieces of advice. And I said, but the third thing that I do, which I'd be remiss if I didn't share with you, and I have no idea how you feel about these things, but the most important thing that has helped me to be successful at work is my prayer life. Now, You'll notice in the way that I present these ideas and these concepts, and just these tidbits, it's all factual. Facts are your friends. Facts are your friends. If you ask me what I did over the weekend and I tell you I went to church and you don't like that answer, then stop asking me. <laughs> but it's just a fact. I'm not shoving anything down your throat. I'm not, doing, I'm not preaching you a sermon, right? You asked me a question, and I gave you an answer which was factual. Stay factual. In the opening rounds of your interaction with these people, stay factual. One, it's factual because it's, stay factual because it's true. There's, no one can refute that. If you get into like evolution and this like right off the bat, then you're going to get into an argument. No one's going to argue with me about whether I went to church. <laughs> right? It is incontrovertible. So stay factual. Two, facts are very innocuous. People don't feel threatened by it. And, I mean, right, but people don't feel threatened by if you're, I, I didn't go and say, you know what, I had this really transformative experience at church. The preacher got up and he talked about how wicked I am. And I was just totally inspired to give my life to the Lord. <laughs> now, that may be an accurate description of what happened this past weekend. But there's so much in there that is not objectively factual, right? It's your experience, but it's not like, I went to church. That is a fact. Stay factual. So it's, it's facts are your friends. And the third thing is these facts, they're bait. That's why I said earlier, have spiritual experiences on a regular basis. Because this is your bait. You don't have to go to the bait store. You don't have to go to the tackle shop. You just have spiritual experiences. And then anytime someone asks you any of these questions or something like them, you have a factual answer to give them that casts bait. And then you can see whether they nibble or whether they're hungry or whether they're ripe. If they're not hungry, some of them just swim right on by. I've had people where I give one of these answers, and it's almost like, I'm sorry, were you talking? Like they just change the subject, and, and I have more information. I'm not offended by that. I have more information. Right? Don't get offended by it. They're not turning you down. It's a fact. It's just a fact. You went to church. You heard a speaker. You went to GYC. It's just a fact. Does that all make sense? Naturally engage in spiritual conversations. Then some of these, like I told you, will lead to studying together. So, and we've got five minutes left. So I'm going to go really fast. But that last part was probably the most challenging part. All right. 
start where they're interested. The atheist knew nothing about anything who I study with, so I started from the beginning. The evangelical who I'm studying with, he grew up in his church. He actually has a pretty decent knowledge of the Bible. What he was interested in was prophecy, so I started there. Don't assume prior knowledge, but find out what they know. Ask them what they know. At the beginning of any topic I introduce and I study the Bible with people on, I'll say, hey, you know, I don't know if you've ever looked at Daniel before. Have you? Have you ever looked at Daniel before? And they'll say yes, or they'll say no, or whatever. They'll say the lion's den, right? But then you'll know what they know. Or, or the, uh, they're the atheists. I'll say, uh, so what do you think happens after you die? Do you have any preconceived notions about that? He says, well, you become fertilizer. And I said, that's actually pretty good. That's not far off from the truth, all right? Be authentic. Just be yourself. Don't, be, don't try to be some big preacher or anything that you've seen. Just be yourself. Take a factual tone. We've talked about being factual, right? Stay attuned. It's like, like, what are they? Are they, are they getting it? Are they reacting? Are they negative? Just, you got to really put out your antenna for how they are reacting. Make statements in the form of questions, right? So I'm talking, I'm talking with my evangelical Bible study friend. We're talking about state of the dead, what happens after you die. Was, evangelicals are tough in a lot of ways. And I just asked him, well, okay, so what do you think happened to Lazarus right before he was raised from the dead? I'm making a statement in the form of a question. Right? Do you see that? Do you see that? Right? I'm making a statement in the form. What I'm saying is, you know, unless you think that Lazarus was pulled out of heaven, back into his earthly body, to live the drudgery of the rest of his life on earth, only to do that again, unless you think that, then your worldview doesn't make sense. And so I am making a statement in the form of a question. The Socratic method, have you heard of the Socratic method? Right, that is really important and really useful. Uh, assume they'll fact check. Google exists. Wikipedia exists. In fact, any topic I'm going to study, I will go and I'll Google it or I'll look on Wikipedia, see what it says about it, just to be sure. And then assume that they're going to do the same. This is the wealthy, worldly, and well-educated, right? I mean, that's why they're a little bit of a different animal. Don't argue, just make observations. So going back to that example. All right, so I get what you're saying about what happens after you die, but what do you think happened to Lazarus? I'm just making an observation here that it seems, whoa. I think someone just leaned on the lights. Could you hit number three? All right. Well, you can definitely see the slides now. All right. Manage your time, which I'm doing a poor job of doing, because you don't want to go on and on forever. Um, I don't know. You, so some people say, oh, but what if they ask me a question that I don't know the answer to? Then I say, well, you just say, I don't know. That's a good question. I'll look into that. Literally, that's all you have to say. Right? That's a good question. Make sure you understand their question, though. Um, sometimes people say, oh, but what about this? And what about that? And what about this? And what about that? And you just say, well, that's a whole other study. In fact, we're going to study that in a few weeks, which also means you have to keep studying with me for a few more weeks to get that question answered. <laughs> and this last point, which is probably the most important, is remember you're not the Holy Spirit. Oh, man, the, you know, there are people who I'm studying with, and I'm just I'm presenting the truth. They're, they're saying, yeah, that makes sense. Um, but then when it gets to that point where it's like, okay, so what are you going to do about it? 
they're just like, well, you know, I just got to study more. And someone asked about when to say when. Um, I, I put it in this, this camp, which is when to say when is when, when the Holy Spirit tells you. Just keep praying for them. Keep praying. There's, there's one individual who I, I went through 28 Bible studies with this person. The entire message from front to back, every single one, she, uh, this person's saying, yeah, I agree with that. That makes sense. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I invited this person to church multiple times, and, and this person came multiple times. But at the, at the very end of it, this person's like, well, I'm still you know, at a point in my life where I want to go and have fun and do this thing and that thing, and, and I want to work on my career, and I just, I just feel like all this religion stuff is just going to get in the way of that. Well, for that person, I, she, she wanted to keep studying with me. But I, I prayerfully made a decision that I would say, well, that's actually all the studies I've got. You're always welcome to join me at church. And I still invite this person when I'm preaching. But I basically had to gently say, you know what, we're not going to do the weekly thing anymore because I didn't want to become a substitute for church. Now, there are different calls you can make. So it's a very prayerful decision. There, there's one individual, an atheist, who I've been studying with for a year and a half. But you just, so you just you ask the Lord. That's the only thing I can tell you. It's also about your time. Um, I've told you about how people ask me to study with them. I actually have pulled back because I've got three active studies going on right now. I don't have time for another one. There are more people I'm convinced I could study with if, if I only had the time. And so... You do have to be judicious with your time and where you're spending it. And if any of the three I'm studying with were to sort of end up in a different place and I felt like the Holy Spirit saying, you know, it's time to cut loose on this one, then I would do that. Uh, we're going to skip this, but basically this is just an example of the Bible studies. I had to write my own Bible studies because I didn't feel like any of the off-the-shelf ones worked for the wealthy, worldly, and well-educated. They like outlines. They like facts. They like data. This is very, like, boom point by point by point what's going on. And, and so um, at the Bonders website, which um, are there more forms? Can we start passing those out? For those of you who weren't here last time, I'd like you to fill out a form if you're interested in this ministry. The form's pretty self-explanatory. So if you didn't get one last time, uh, someone is handing them out. And please hand them back in uh, once you're done. But anyway, this is an example. This stuff will be posted at Campus and Bonders website. Um, we're almost, we're in the home stretch here. This is a process. There, you have thousands of people you know, depending on how many Facebook friends or whatever you got. I don't know. But there are thousands of people you know probably. And then you're going to have spiritual conversations with these people. Few or many, or light or deep spiritual conversations. And you're going to have, you know, I've had hundreds of these conversations, just like the ones I just talked about, like how was your weekend, right? Spiritual conversations, hundreds of those. A very small subset of those are going to lead to actual Bible studies, frankly, because you don't have the time. But, you know, uh, but uh, Bible studies will leave, and then you'll get converts out of those. This has been my experience over the last few years. Now, remember, this is hard work. This is the hardest segment to reach, and so it's a funnel effect. It goes from thousands to single digits, but just be faithful. And we'll just, wait, uh, we'll just end on this, this uh, point here. This is Paul. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you? 
in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming. For you are our glory and joy. And it's been said before, but I'll say it again, you only take converts in your character to heaven. And I just want you to think about a couple scenarios once you're in heaven. Which is, one is, you're going to be in the millennium, and you're going to have overwhelming joy seeing those other people in your life who are there with you. Amen? Amen. Amen. And then you're going to have overwhelming sorrow when you recognize those who are in your circle of influence and your loved ones who are not there. You're going to have overwhelming sorrow. Amen? Amen. But then there's a third option. Did you know that there's a third option? You're going to be walking down the streets of gold, and you're going to see someone who you knew. You're going to say, great, you're here. I had no idea. And they're going to look at you and say, you sat on the desk next to me for 10 years, and you never once said anything. How could you keep that to yourself? And you're going to have extreme joy, you're going to have extreme sorrow, and you're going to have extreme awkwardness. (laughs) That is going to be an awkward conversation. You sat next to me for 10 years and you didn't say anything. And what we've just done here, I hope you'll see. Does anyone... So let me just close and ask a couple questions. Spiritual conversations, does that seem easy or hard? Easy, Easy, right? This is the easiest thing you could possibly do. How many of you think you could actually do this? I think most people, about 10% need a little work. All right? This is the easiest thing you can do, but it can lead to Bible studies with the wealthy, worldly, and well-educated in ways that you could never do through handing them a tract or handing them a video and just saying, hey, good luck with that. Right? Won't work. Personal efforts, drawing close to them, heart to heart. All right. We don't have time for questions. Let's close for a word of prayer. I'm happy to answer questions individually. Um, And don't forget session three. We're going to go more deeply into these. I'm going to give you more examples from my personal life as to how I've applied these principles, and we're going to do some practicing of our own and do Q&A. So let's, uh, let's have a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you so much uh, for the gift that you've given us in Jesus, your Son. Lord, we know that there will be ecstatic joy, deep sorrow, and extreme awkwardness, Lord. But Lord, what we do today will determine how much of each we have when we're in your kingdom. Lord, I pray that these principles will be applied by each and every person here when they go back and interact with their sphere of influence. And we pray that the Holy Spirit would be upon each one of them. We pray this in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Thank you, and don't forget session three after lunch. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, please visit us online at www.gycweb.org.